folks, it's that time of the week. Grab your big league chew, your sunflower seeds, and dig in because it's Good Hacks, episode three. I'm Max Goodman alongside Tim Hackett. Welcome on into the pod. Tim, it was, it was a busy week of baseball. How are you? I'm doing well, Max. I'm excited for the show. We've got all of our content coming out, a lot of different kinds of things, social hits, longer form videos, and now we're back to episode three of the old podcast. And like you said, a lot to talk about. Finally into the second full month of the season, which means award time. You said it, Tim. April has come to a close. And let's run through the awards that Major League Baseball dished out, starting with the players of the month. And I think that they got these right, Tim. In the National League, there was absolutely no question. Cody Bellinger, leading the NL and pretty much all of baseball in almost every single offensive statistic. In 31 games, he's hitting 431 with 14 homers and 37 RBIs. Absolutely bonkers statistics. And the Dodgers are playing super well. He's leading the charge. On the American League side, it's a shortstop from the south side of Chicago, Tim Anderson. Not exactly setting the world on fire statistically. He's hitting 375, which is obviously amazing. It's decent, yeah, it's yeah, all right. But six home runs, 18 RBIs. He Overall, I think he earned that in the AL. Do you think those two were, were good choices? Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, Anderson's a much different player, right? Like, this right. is your top-of-the-order hitter, not meant to be your big slugger. He's now showcased a different part of his game this year. When he came up to the bigs a couple of years ago, he was your prototypical leadoff hitting shortstop, good defense, great speed, contact hitting type of guy. Now, obviously, he's made some headlines over the last couple of weeks, which we'll talk a little bit more about. Yep. But now he's got some added oomph to his bat, I guess. Uh, on a team where I kind of wondered where that would come from since they didn't bring back Matt Davidson, who was one of the best home run hitters in baseball yeah. two years ago. So now Anderson, well, he's got eight home runs, well, sorry, six home runs in April out of mostly the leadoff, the top of the order location in the for the White Sox generally. That's such an impressive aspect to his game. I don't mind saying, Max, I was really excited when he got called up. I got to see him a little bit in AAA. I thought he was going to be a really good major league player. I know a couple of other people that I've talked to or that – follow the major leagues, felt the same way. And he's kind of proved us right with this. He's been a really, really solid player. Solid defender. Yeah, he's got some speed. I think he really filled in the uh, the shortstop role well for them after, I guess it was Alexi Ramirez was was the, the shortstop for them before, before Anderson got there. But I digress. Moving on to Pitchers of the Month. Tim, who got those awards? So the April Pitchers of the Month for... The American League, Tyler Glasnow from the Tampa Bay Rays. And for the National League, Luis Castillo out of the National League. Talk about two perhaps not household names, two much younger guys. What do you think about these awards, Max? Well, both of them have the lowest ERA in their league. And, I mean, full disclosure, I didn't really know who those guys were before this year. And I, I love the fact that they're really hitting their stride. Let's go through their stats. Glasno is 5 and 0 with a 1.75 ERA in 6 starts. So, just 7 runs allowed in 36 innings, striking out 38 with only 7 walks. Um obviously the Rays are one of the best teams in all of baseball right now. I don't think they have the best record anymore, but they did for for a long stretch. And on the complete other side of the spectrum, Cincinnati, who's one of the worst in in the league, 
Um, Castillo's got off to a fantastic start, three and one, one point four five ERA in seven starts, and same same as Glasnow, just seven runs allowed in forty three and a third innings. And Great American Ballpark is pretty small, Tim. So the fact that he's been able to do that, and um, out of the Marlins system, I don't know if you followed him when he was in the minors. Not as much. I didn't get to see him yeah. in person. But, I mean, interesting to see. I know the Reds made a lot of moves to try to shore up that rotation, um, getting some more household names. But, really, it's been Castillo. I'm sure Reds fans are ecstatic about him really hitting his stride, like I said. Yeah, that's what we talked about earlier. You know, if the people said in the offseason that, you know, look at this lineup that the Reds have with all the guys that they brought in or whatever. But... You know, what's holding them back is their starting pitching. So if they develop some pitchers, you know, they brought in Sonny Gray, a guy that, like you mentioned, a more household name to, you know, try to shore up that pitching staff. But if they find some other guys to actually augment that rotation, build it out, and Luis Castillo is that guy so far. I was expecting he might win this award when we were talking about the National League a couple of weeks ago. Like you said, the ERAs, I think, speak for themselves, but if you dig just a little bit deeper and go into slightly more advanced stats that I don't, we don't need to talk about in depth, these are two guys that have checked all of the boxes yeah. in those categories as well. They do things that don't show up necessarily, but the strikeout numbers are there as well. And Glasnow, as we mentioned, is a guy that can throw 97 as a starter. He's hit that you know, consistently across his career. Uh, But this is a new start. He was up with the Pirates at times last year, but this is his first full season, really, as an MLB starting pitcher. So this is Castillo's third, I think. So two young guys, and we'll see if they can continue continue this great start to the year as it goes on. It's Obviously, there's a lot lot more baseball still to go. 100%. Next up was the reliever of the month of April. In the AL, it went to Shane Green in Detroit. He has 12 saves. Two earned runs in 14 games played. In the National League, Kirby Yates, only one earned run in 16 games played. And so the the common factor with both of those guys are they're both closers, obviously, and they both led their respective lead in saves. But it wasn't by one. Both of them were by at least three saves, just running away with it in their respective leagues. I know Detroit and San Diego are not the best teams in their league and probably are playing a lot more close games than, you know, the the Twins right now or the Dodgers. But to give up only two runs and 14 appearances for, for Green and one run in 16 appearances for Yates, and he has a .56 ERA, which is absolutely filthy. We know he throws really hard. Um... You you've been a Kirby Yates guy for a while. We know that, but Shane Green, what do you what do you know about him? Yeah, I mean, what what stands out to me about these two guys, besides just the true numbers of saves, is how they relate to wins. Because, like you said, yeah, neither the Tigers nor the Padres are expected to be all that good. But Shane Green, twelve saves. Detroit has thirteen wins. Kirby Yates, fourteen saves. And as of May the third, the Padres have eighteen wins. Wow. So they contribute to those wins. Obviously, you know, the save statistic has come under some scrutiny, I guess, over the last couple of years. You know, is it really valid? You know, should it be reworked? Do we even, does it even matter? Yeah. I think that's a conversation we could have. But the fact of the matter to me is that these guys directly correlate to the success, even if it's minor success, that those two teams have had. To me, there's absolutely no doubt the Tigers would have had, you know, let's say half as many wins 
as they have right now without Shane Green finally oh, yeah. being that type of guy that can finally be that reliable guy out of the back end of the bullpen that they probably haven't really had since K-Rod. Or, yeah, I mean, I, I can't even think of anybody exactly. else. Or Valverde. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's probably, yeah, what, 2012 or so? It was like their, their deep playoff good, run They're good years. Yeah. Um, San Diego, I mean, Trevor Hoffman. Trevor Hoffman. But doesn't get much better yeah, since then. Yeah, try something. <laughs> I, I, you, you stumped me. And Yates was a setup guy, really, right. last year. Uh, I think, at the top of my head, had you know maybe four or five saves all year. He started to close at the end of the year. Right. right. And now this year, that's his job. Yeah. He is the closer. And like I said during the National, our National League preview a couple of weeks ago, Super excited for him. He's got a really cool story. I've heard a couple of times as a Hawaii native. Used to be kind of a middle relief type, but settled in as the closer. And right now, you know, you can debate best closer, whatever. But in terms of his one job, most successful closer in baseball through one month. Yeah, I mean, no no, no surprises here. I mean, I think these guys are going to be consistently knocking at the door when these awards come out every single month. And they're definitely worthy candidates. Um, fourth award. Tim, who won the Rookies of the Month? Rookies of the Month out of the American League, Brandon Lau from the Tampa Bay Rays and from the Mets, Peter Alonzo. Surprise for Brandon Lau. There are a lot of decent, I guess, American League rookies this year, but Lau came out of nowhere, capped off his week this week by hitting a go-ahead two-run home run to get the Rays a win over the Royals the other day. And then he was given this award that afternoon, was asked about it. He says that it's pretty special to you know just be – the best among a solid crop of rookies in the American League. 289 hitters, six total home runs, five doubles, three steals, 17 runs driven in for Lau in the month of April. And Pete Alonso, the Mets' top prospect, finally cracks the code, made the starting lineup earlier this year. Yeah, 292 hitter with nine homers, tied for the most ever by a Met before the month of May. You just go through all of these lists. Um, half you know, half legends, Dave Kingman and Carlos Delgado. The other two Delgado. guys, John Buck oh, and wow, okay. Neil Walker. So Neil Walker. not exactly Mets legends, but I think well, Delgado's a legend. Well, no, right, that's what I'm saying. So Delgado and Kingman, right, Mets yeah, yeah, legends. Yeah, yeah. Okay, John Buck and Neil Walker, not so right. much. But uh, I mean, for Peter Alonso, this was a he called it a fantasy, um, and I mean, I'm I'm impressed. This is these are guys him and uh, McNeil and Dom Smith, guys that have been I don't want to say suppressed, but haven't been able to be haven't haven't been able to contribute to the Mets in recent years. They've been stuck in AAA for various reasons. We talked about it with McNeil coming up and being able to play a little bit of third now that David Wright isn't on the team anymore. Right. Now those paths are unblocked, and those guys when Dom Smith got sent back down yesterday, but say. you know yeah. they have at least the opportunity to finally showcase what they can do at the highest level. Right. I mean, when McNeil came up at the end of last year, I'm sure he was in the running for these awards. Um, and even for Rookie of the Year, I don't know if he actually ended up playing enough last year. But, yeah, I mean, Alonzo was always touted, but it's it's a whole other Oprah special for someone to get there and perform. And you got to feel bad for Dom Smith. I mean, he hasn't been... Chris Davis bad, but now there there's no need for him at first with Alonzo coming in and and doing incredibly well. So that does it for the four sets of awards for this past month. But the big, you know, really big question about these awards are who got snubbed? Who's off this list that should have been on the list? 
And I think you have a big name that a lot of people have been watching. Same team as Kirby Yates. Yeah, I, th- I don't, honestly, Max, I don't know if there are any huge snubs, but the fringe contender for me is Chris Paddock. This is a guy that has turned heads over the last couple of weeks. He's been such a rock-solid arm for the Padres this year. 191 ERA, 35 Ks, over 33 total innings this season. Seven earned runs, two homers, uh, and a whip of .7 batting average, one two six so doesn't allow hits allows one or you know a couple of extra bases but I, I don't know I've been really impressed with what I've seen out of yeah. him he's a rookie so I think he would in, in my opinion he's runner up for National League rookie of the right. month maybe even National League pitcher of the month as well yeah I mean I don't know if he can if he was better I know the different positions so it's hard to compare no, I don't sure. know if he was better than Alonzo I think he was definitely the best rookie pitcher in the NL and maybe if Alonzo was an AL player because I think he had a better month than Lau did yeah and better overall true hitting stats right different positions statistically wise different positions um also Paddock also from the Marlins system which we talked (laughs) about Castillo just Marlins fans cover your ears myself (laughs) included um so yeah I mean I, I really can't think of any other names that that didn't get on this list Obviously, tough tough for Yelich, who is now day to day with with some right. injuries in his back. But that if, was the big debate. Yeah, if if Bellinger didn't finish with the thirty seven RBIs, breaking that record for the most RBIs before May first in Major League history, if he didn't do that well, you would have obviously given it to Yelich. Yeah, there's one more thing I want to say about Bellinger, and I read this on ESPN this week. So you put him and Yelich in that same mix because of how good mm-hmm. that they both were until Yelich, you know, is like you said, has been slowed a little bit by injuries. But there are nine other guys in the history of Major League Baseball that ESPN compiled that had months of April similar to what Cody Bellinger did. So just, you know, to spell it out again, 427, 14 home runs, 36 RBIs. So nine guys with numbers somewhere along those lines. So you're talking about, you know, some dodgy numbers here. So like Mark McGuire in 1998, Barry Bonds in 2004, very dodgy. But then Albert Pujols in 06, Ken Griffey Jr. in 97, Larry Walker in 1997. Of those nine guys that are comparable to Cody Bellinger, four of them ultimately won league MVP and two more were runners up. Wow. So that is just kind of just the pace that Bellinger is on. I don't yeah. know how many RBIs he's going to finish with, what his batting average at the end of the year is going to be. Is it going to be over 400? Probably not. doesn't matter. So if this, you know, this is the precedent that he set, this is how good that he has been, as good as Larry Walker was, comparable to Larry Walker's 1997 MVP season. So I just thought that put it in perspective really well. I mean, the only thing that could derail that for Bellinger, I guess, is injuries. Right. I mean, when you set that kind of pace, it would be hard for him to end up like not cracking MVP voting, um, unless Yelich absolutely, you know, went berserk and then doubled his pace and passed Bellinger. But I mean, they're they're going to stay around here, if not lower. I think right. Um, so it works. Yeah, but you know, they're 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 those players that have slow starts. Like Anthony Rizzo, for example, is notorious for struggling in April and then hitting their stride in June. Mm. I mean, if 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 Yelly and Bellinger can keep this up, it's going to be fun to watch at the end of the year. And if both of them can stay healthy, of course, as well. Um, a segment that I wanted to start, Tim, uh, 
is the the buen hombre of the week. And of course, Goodman is my last name. If you don't know that already, you haven't been following me too much. Uh, so buen hombre is a little nickname. And I wanted to each week on the podcast point out the player that I think had the most effective, impressive performance. And I don't want to use one one way to describe it because it could be a single performance or a week long performance versus you know a pitcher versus a hitter. Um, and this week we're going to get a little bit of a combination of both with Noah Syndergaard's performance against the Cincinnati Reds. And we'll walk you through for those of you that didn't see it or haven't heard about it yet somehow. Um, this was from the second, so just a few days ago. And, you know, something that has only been done seven times before, or this w- this was the seventh time in Major League Baseball history that a pitcher threw a nine-inning complete game shutout, but also hit a home run for their team's one run as the Mets went on to win one to nothing. I don't know how much of that game you were able to watch, Tim, but what stuck out to you about Syndergaard's performance? Uh, you know, you hear the phrase in college sometimes and in the in the National League, you know, and in softball, helping your own cause. Yeah. So a pitcher comes up and hits an RBI single that helps his or her own cause. And that's just a fun thing to say. But in this instance, he didn't help his own cause. He was his own cause right. because nobody else did anything no. offensively. And obviously, other people had hits, some people made defensive plays, you know, obviously. But this was it. one nothing yeah. co- win, complete game shutout. The only run came on a solo home run by the pitcher. Like you said, this has only happened now seven times in the history right. of Major League Baseball. And you know, and reading other things about it, it's rarer than a perfect game in terms of true yeah. occurrences, Fairly times that happens. that's occurred. You could not see this again for 10 years. Right. Uh, the last time this happened was 83. Um, also, yeah. Syndergaard, obviously, again, he pitched all nine innings. Season high, 10 strikeouts, and only four hits allowed. But... The, the, the two most impressive things for me are, one, the fact that he didn't get taken out of the game. A, a complete game is so uncommon these days. That's true. And two, the home run was not a, you know, squeak over the fence. Syndergaard went the other way, for one, on an outside fastball. He blasted it to left center, and City Field is, is you know, deep. But it got over the wall that used to, remember they, they brought the fences right. in. And it got over where the fences used to be okay. a couple of years ago. So it was a big league home run. Yeah, for sure. It was the hardest hit ball by a pitcher all season. And it was anticipated to go 407 feet. When you, you see those numbers, you think it was, you know, Robbie Cano or Peter Alonzo. And it was actually Syndergaard. Um, but right, like you said, he got no help. Shades of DeGrom last year with, with the Mets. Good point. Um, Great point. So hopefully they can turn their offense around and help Syndergaard so he can win those kind of games like 10 to nothing. But only seven other times now. Uh, I don't know if you think this can be done again in the future. It's 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 going to be hard to see that again anytime yeah. soon. Yeah, that's the thing is that, you know, just in terms of how baseball is structured, there's just no other opportunity for this to happen. This mm-hmm. can only happen when you have a pitcher that can be efficient enough to go nine innings with a manager on a team organization that, as to your point, would be willing to let a pitcher throw right. nine innings. And even more so than that, it has to be in the National League. 
Yeah. Or, you know, you do it in the American League and you lose your DH or whatever and you let your pitcher hit for some nonsensical right. reason. But that's so, even more uncommon. Exactly. Like, and that, you wouldn't, would you wouldn't purposefully give up your DH so that your yeah. pitcher could hit, right? You know, there's absolutely nobody that you would do that for in the American League. So that's why something like this is so rare that, you know, sometimes you'll see a pitcher drive in a run as a starter or maybe somebody comes off the bench like a Michael Lorenzen situation recently. Okay. But that's why this specific stat, if you will, is so rare. And I thought that one of the things that you and I were talking about, somebody threw out the concept of a true win mm-hmm. where this is, you know, a bonus stat, like, you know, something else that is special to a pitcher. But it's, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it's when a pitcher is wholly responsible for all of the offense in a game and he himself drives in himself more times than he allows the other team to score. So right. that would be in a 2-1 final score. The pitcher, in this case, Noah Syndergaard, let's say, allows one run, and he also produces both of the runs for the team. But that isn't a two-run double. That is two solo home runs yeah. where he drives in himself more times than he allows the other team to score. I think that's ridiculous. I don't know how yeah. many times you'll ever see that. Because then if you know in a slightly off day pitching and say you give up three runs over nine innings, which is still a very good day, you would then have to hit four separate solo home runs. And again, it's not a grand slam. If you mm-hmm. had a game-winning grand slam, you've driven in all four runs. But those three other guys that have scored runs, under these uh, parameters and restrictions, you would have to hit four separate solo home runs right. in a game where you give up three. I think that's ridiculous. Yeah, so we got this from a Sam Miller ESPN article, to give credit where credit's due. And Miller did some digging statistically, clearly, which, I mean, it was it was a great article, really good read, I'd recommend it. This, the, the parameters that Tim described, it's only happened 208 times since 1908. Now, including combined no-hitters, there have been 300 no-hitters in history, meaning that this kind of performance, the true win, is more rare than a no-hitter. And for a no-hitter, you get the notifications on your phone, you get the the hoopla on MLB Network with the live look-ins and, and talking about it and everybody jinxes it and then it still happens. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, I guess there's, on average, probably like a, a few a year. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. I know there were probably like seven a year in, in recent history. Something like that. But this true win is is even more uncommon. And... Again, the fact that Syndergaard's homer was was an absolute blast, and the fact that he held them to one run, held them to no runs, so it wasn't that situation where he right. gives up one run and then still hits two home runs. Like this was the absolute pinnacle of this true win scenario. Something that we probably will not see again for who knows a decade multiple decades unless he does it again in his next start i don't know it's a good point i mean we've seen other one nothing games and chris paddock had a one nothing game earlier this year right but he only pitched seven innings and somebody else drove in well that's run. the other thing and i looked up because when you were talking about this a second ago i looked it up Syndergaard threw 104 pitches which i don't know like 10 years ago you'd think that that's like a regular start yeah for, and for a true ace nowadays that's the most pitches he's thrown in any start this year. And I feel like the Mets manager must have been biting his nails to the to the nub because he was so <laughs> nervous. And remember how, like, Dave Roberts, you know, that one situation where he took Rich Hill out 
during his no hitter. Sure. Um, that's such a tough decision because sure. you don't want your guy to get hurt. And for all intents and purposes, a, a true win doesn't really matter Not as long least. as you win the game. Of course. And the Mets just spent so much time and effort and money bolstering their bullpen. I'm sure they would, would have been totally fine in a 1-0 game going to their closer or going to a setup man. But they stuck with him and it ended up working out. But that's that's the other thing. You, you're trying to find a situation where a pitcher can somehow run into a homer and also somehow not give runs up through six, seven, eight innings. But this whole other different factor that I'm sure statisticians and uh, historians weren't thinking about 20, 30 years ago is the fact that a manager is not really going to let a pitcher go nine these days unless they have a lot of trust in them. Yeah, that's a, that's another good point. And I think my biggest issue with this whole true win thing is something I hinted at. But mm-hmm. like, I think that a pitcher should be commended if they you know, drive in all the necessary runs. I think it's ridiculous. My, my, my biggest hang-up is that they have to drive in themselves all this time. So if Sindergaard right. hits right. a three-run home run and the Mets win three to two, he gets the win. He might say he throws a complete game in that. It probably wouldn't happen, but let's say that's the case. Mm-hmm. And he hits a three-run home run, or you know, bases clearing double, or whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a home run. But he's driven in all three runs. He's responsible for then all the offense and the win. But he didn't drive himself in. exactly, and he didn't drive himself in more than he allowed the opponents to cross the plate. I just think it's. I, you know, I, yeah. I'm usually on the side of pitchers, I guess, is usually right. how I lean, um, as you'll notice. But I think that's just a little bit too stringent on a pitcher. Yeah. You, if you drive in three runs in a game as a pitcher, doesn't matter if they're on, you know, squeeze bunts or on, right. a, on a home run. I, that's, that's a fun But either game. way, it's, it's a fascinating lens. And I think from now on, whenever I see a pitcher still pitching late in the game in a shutout and the team has has one run or it's still a tie game. I'm going to, you know, keep an eye on this kind of thing. It brings me back to when Pedro Martinez went 10 with with a no-hitter and then ended up losing the game. Mm-hmm. Um you know, those those kind of perform- or remember when Henderson Alvarez had the uh no-hitter for the Marlins and then the Marlins won in the bottom of the ninth, 1-0 against the Tigers. Okay. And he was on deck, and it was like a oh. wild pitch, and Stanton scored. Um, you know, that was a situation where if he got it up, like, it could have been him. He could have hit a walk-off home run. And that would have been Alvarez is not a hitter, but that that's the qual- only – that's like the most recent situation. But that, that would have qualified right. for this instance if he right. hit a walk-off solo home run in a complete game. But if he hit a walk-off also- single, it wouldn't right. have counted. Exactly. So that's, that's the – yeah, no, we're on the same page. Um, transitioning from Syndergaard's performance to another storyline from this series between the Mets and the Reds, as, as Syndergaard struck out Jesse Winker to start the game, a lot of the fans at City Field were aggressively waving at Winker to go back to the dugout. And something we saw the day before was when Winker, great sliding catch, makes the play to end the game in City Field. He's laying on the ground right by the barrier to the fans on the field level right down the left field line. He catches it, looks up, and starts waving at the fans as if like a drive home safely kind of thing when when they're the home team. Um, Runs all the way to center field to do the high fives with the other outfielders, continues to wave, starts to get to the high five line with the rest of his team still waving. So, you know, obviously with MLB trying to let the kids play, and we'll talk about bat flips too with Tim Anderson. And we talked about that on our triple play on Tuesday. 
does this fall under the celebrations are okay discussion? And I, I don't know, like if you were in Winker's situation, I don't really know what the background was. Right. Maybe the, the fans in left field were talking to him the whole time and he, his team won. They haven't won that many games so far. So it was a little bit of a release for him, but you haven't seen, I don't, I can't think of the last time a player interacted with a fan that way in such close parameters. That's the thing, like you said, I think there's a story here that we don't know. If those yeah. fans were, you know, giving him the business per se, the whole game, if they were heckling him, it's possible, right? right. Based on where he was. And then he makes a really nice sliding catch in foul territory to end the game, give his team the win. Then he kind of says, you know, you know, here's something back. If that's the case, then I have less of a problem with it. I guess I personally, Max, in all of these situations, I don't love, you know, showboating. This is just kind of my personality. Right. This is one of the few ways that we differ, I guess. But I would rather you just go about and do your job. And I don't want to, you know, be like a. I don't want to. I don't mean to sound like you know the stereotypical Major League Baseball color commentator these days, where I don't like yeah. any fun. Yeah. But like I said about bat flips, and we you know we can talk about this more in a second. But I'm okay with it. I'm okay that there's a celebration. Sure. I'm not playing, obviously, but as long as everybody is allowed to celebrate. If those fans were trashing, heckling Jesse Winker, and he decided to retaliate by giving him a passive aggressive but fair enough response, yeah. then I'm okay with that. But if he just was like, you know, see you later, I won the game, obviously I'm not as cool with that. Yeah, and it's one thing to interact with fans too. I agree. Because, you know, if, if coming in contact with a fan is obviously completely off limits with, you know, Malice in the Palace crossing over to basketball for a second when, you know, like, I think it was Ron Artest and his team went into the stands and started having a brawl with fans. Sounds like something that legendary he, video. Sounds like something he would do. Um, it, it brought me back to what Damian Lillard did when he hit the buzzer beater. He waved to the Oklahoma City Thunder because they just won the series. So it's but he another to the players, right? That's what I'm saying. It's another thing if Winker hits a walk off home run and waves to the other team as he's about to get home. I think that would be justified if yeah. there, if it was getting chippy from both sides. I don't know if it's smart to do that with fans, though. You know that anything further than what he did, because obviously he didn't hurt anybody. No. But you got to be careful with fines and uh, you know going viral for something that he didn't want. But you're right. If they were heckling him the whole time, his team won. He contributed to the win. He made the nice sliding catch. Sure, wave. But with bat flips, I think that my my big take on bat flips is you got to try to find a happy medium. I think that when you look at the clips of like, you know, uh, Asian baseball leagues, and they're notorious for even like a double in the gap, just absolutely launching the bat straight up into the air on the follow through. That might be a little too much, especially on a double. I mean, I loved Jose Bautista's legendary bat flip because it was in a playoff series and it was a huge home run for the game and for the series as a whole. If that was top of the first in a random game in May on a Wednesday, I think that's a little too much. You can, sure, if you get into one and you earned it, you know, let the bat fly a little bit and show your personality and your style, but... Then the other side of the spectrum is a guy like Mike Trout, who hits home runs for a living, hits the ball, puts his head down, runs the first. 
Another guy's like Mickey Mantle, you know, legendary story that his dad always taught him, no matter how good you are, you hit the ball, you put your head down, you run to first, you don't disrespect anybody. So I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's a personal preference, I guess. Yeah. I think you hit it right on the head too, with the color commentators that they're, they're a stickler for it. But I think with, with this day and age and like social media highlights and, and doing it for video, I think a lot more people are going to continue to bat flip as well in the future. It's a trend. I mean, you see yeah. this, and like you said, as long as it's not something that people do all the time to now say like, uh, well, look at me, I'm going to do this now too. Right. Again, I think what you, I, as, as usual, I don't disagree with pretty much anything you just said. Yeah. You, you have to pick your spots. I come from, you know, the hockey world or whatever. You're going to celebrate after you score a goal. That's how yeah. it that's how it goes. If you're in the NBA, often you'll celebrate a little bit after you hit a three-pointer, but hitting a three-pointer to start the second half is not the same thing as you hitting a three-pointer to go up by one with 5 seconds left in the fourth quarter yeah. of the conference finals. There's a big difference and I again, more of a conservative approach to these things, not everything, but to these kinds of things. I generally don't love huge celebrations in the moment. Afterwards, you win the game. Yeah, obviously. Right. But, you know, if you're going to score a goal or hit a shot like that or hit a home run, you're allowed to celebrate. You just did something special. Yeah. I prefer to limit it a little bit. And like you said, there's a fine line between showing off or being happy, not even showing off, just being proud of what you just did because obviously these are amazing athletes. Right. And then also, you know, just continuing to do your job like somebody like Mike Trout does. My ultimate point for the bat flips is that it's got to be played both ways. Mm -hmm. Brian Wilson, I think, is my primary example for this. Every time when he used to save a game for the Giants back in his heyday, the beginning of the Giants game, he would do the arms cross thing, look back to the dugout, and celebrate with Buster Posey or whoever it was yeah. as he walked back. He got flack for that at times as well. Right, exactly, the Sergio Romo arrow thing. Or Fernando, Fernando Rodney. Rodney and the yeah. Sergio Romo does his thing as well. Does like a Gangnam-style He took over thing, for yeah. Brian Wilson when Wilson left, and then yeah. it became Sergio Romo doing his little closer thing. He would turn around and like shout at the sky or whatever right. whenever he saved a game. And it was fun in the World Series, but then, like you said, if it's a random Wednesday in May, it means less. So if I think that's okay. What Brian Wilson does, does, used to do is okay as long as... As it goes both ways. Exactly. Yeah. Um, something else I thought about in terms of the future. Remember when Derek Dietrich hit the home run against Archer and stared it down and that led to the brawl? Oh, sure. The famous Puig picture yep. um, of him taking on the entire Pirates roster, it seemed. On social media, after the fact, it was trending hashtag Derek Dietrich challenge or Derek Dietrich stare. I forget what the exact hashtag was. Um... And I think I saw this from like a cut for uh, retweet or something like that. And there are not little leaguers, but like high schoolers who have video of their at bats and them hitting home runs and staring at it exactly like Derek Dietrich did. And so let the kids play. I love that idea. And I want to make baseball fun because I want this game in America's pastime to continue to develop and have more fans moving forward. But also with the way that social media is and technology these days, so many more people are watching now than like when Babe Ruth was hitting home runs. I don't even know if Babe Ruth bat flipped. Probably not. Probably not. But the kids watching Babe Ruth then are different than the kids watching the best players in the game today who emulate them and want to play like them when they're playing. So 
the reason why I think that bat flips and celebrations are going to continue to develop in the next couple of generations, it's exactly because a Chicago White Sox fan is going to see Tim Anderson chuck his bat after that walk-off and the, the go-ahead home run with all that that happened last week. If they happen to get a hold of one in their next game, their next travel ball game, they're going to do the exact same thing because they want to be like their favorite player. Right, absolutely. And so you, you have to widen the, the scope of this discussion that, yeah, in the majors, everybody's professionals and constant professionals, you'd like to think so. But how is a pitcher who's 13 years old going to take it when he gives up a home run? And is that going to encourage some violence and brawls at an even younger age? I don't know. It's just interesting. I think that's a great point. You, you you always have to be conscious of the optics, how you how you look. Like you said, yeah. I mean, I I, I can't really disagree. If that's how you know people are going to comport themselves. Mostly the relationships. I think what you were hinting at, less so the fact that there was a bat flip, but more of the if I hit a home run off you, I'm going to stare you down as I turn to walk the bases. Obviously, I'm a lot less cool with that. Doesn't have to be a brawl afterwards. That might be a little bit ridiculous, but just you know. You gotta have some decorum at some point, don't you? Yeah, I think the, I mean, maybe last thing here, the the perfect example of going both ways. Remember Jason Grilly, sure. reliever. Yeah. So he was on Texas. He struck out Giancarlo Stanton in a blowout when Stanton was still in the Marlins, in an interleague series, and got so excited. And I think I I don't have the video in front of me. I want to say it was like the eighth inning of a throwaway interleague game for two non-contending teams. And Stanton was not happy that he got showed up in that sense. Obviously, Stanton is an MVP guy, and he won the MVP. So maybe for Grilly, it was a personal victory. Later on, Stanton hit a home run against Grilly and did the exact same celebration and threw his bat. I thought that that, that you know put a period to the discussion, and both teams moved on and went their separate way. So if next time the Pirates play the Reds, if Archer strikes Dietrich out, I think he has every right to stare him down. And then the the feud can dissipate, and that's it. Um, that's a better way to resolve it than plunking a guy. Right, but short or of... charging the mound. Short of something happening with, you know, Odor and oh, uh, that, that brawl between the, the Jays and Rangers. The Rangers are always involved in these things, I guess. Um... <laughs> You know, that's not the goal of any of this. Celebrating is not, unless you have bad intentions, celebrating is just to enjoy the game and be happy when you do something important for your team. Uh, You know, football celebrations are becoming, you know... They're allowed again. Yeah, exactly. Maybe not in college as much anymore, but they're allowed in the NFL... NBA players throw up threes when they hit threes and the bench goes absolutely crazy on a, on a poster dunk. Like you said, in hockey, a lot of people celebrate. So I don't want, I don't, I don't want, but I also don't think that baseball should become that sport that nobody celebrates. And that's why MLB is making this initiative. Um, so we'll see where that goes. And this is definitely something to keep an eye on moving forward. I love this kind of discussion. Um, lastly, a segment that, Tim is going to be um, spearheading for for this season and beyond is something called the call-up corner. And obviously, Tim is our resident minor league expert. I do so, what I can. Yeah. Um, there have been a bunch of different call-ups so far this year, a bunch of names that 
you at home know really well and a bunch of names that you might just be getting acclimated to. But currently, four of the five top prospects from Baseball Pipeline are up, except for Royce Lewis. There's so much excitement from a call-up and prospect perspective. And so for someone like, like you, Tim, who follows that closely, what are you keeping an eye on? Because it's hard to watch every single guy every night. I know a couple guys are hurt, but what stands out to you the most? I think that stat that you just brought up, the fact that all of these guys are up right now, is obviously a lot of times you see, you know, number one overall prospect, number three overall prospect, doesn't matter. They're always a few years away, and that's been the case for, like, Vlad Guerrero for the last year and a half or so, and this year he was the number one prospect. Yeah. And he made the big headlines last week around this time when he made his major league debut for the Jays. But I love the fact that all of these guys are now getting their chance. Now, most of the guys in that next level, you know, the 6 to 10 range are a year or two out. So we're not going to see guys like a Mackenzie Gore, who is in A-plus ball right now. We're not going to see him for a long time mm-hmm. unless, you know, the Padres take a flyer on him with the September call-up just to see what he can do. But the fact that we've got four of these other – four of the five top prospects, consensus guys as well, already up and to an extent producing – look at, you know – Look at what Vlad Guerrero has done. He's been solid to start, especially look at what Fernando Tatis has done. Eloy Jimenez has hit a couple of home runs. And now the newest addition to that list is Nick Senzel, who was batting second and playing center field for the Reds on Friday in his debut against Tyler Beatty and the Giants. And I think Senzel is a really interesting prospect. He was a third baseman when he was in college, played second base for a lot of his beginnings of his minor leagues. You talk about paths being blocked. He now saw this is a you know consensus highly regarded prospect. His paths were blocked because of Scooter Jeanette's year last year. He yeah. plays second base, and Eugenio Suarez, who has played short at times and now plays third right. for the Reds. So now those two main positions for Senzel are gone. So they said this year we want you to play something else, and so we came into spring training playing center field. And uh, Scott Shebler was the starting center fielder for the Reds this year. Hasn't really played too well to this point in the season. So you bring somebody like that up, start him in center field, see what he can do. It can't hurt him to now show that he can play some other things. And since Jeanette is now on the 60-day injured list and Suarez is out right now as well, maybe that gives a guy like Senzel more opportunities to play some more. I love the fact that he's versatile. The question mark with him is now that he's had an injury. Last year, he only played in, I want to say, 44 games because he had vertigo, which had uh, been a problem for him earlier in his career. It had disappeared until last year when it came back. He hit 310 in those 44 games with eight home runs or so. So a good season at double A. And now this year, he comes back to triple A, plays only eight games, has a hit in seven of them, including a three hit game against Toledo. And now he's up. And maybe it's temporary. But I don't know. If Shebler continues to struggle and you have a guy that can play a couple of different positions like Senzel can, he might be up for good. This is about the time of year, like we saw last year with Ronald Acuna, that teams finally start to right. you know, take that cover off the lid, let the guy come up, and once that happens, they never go back down. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the, the whole top prospects um, numerical values, though, um, I don't necessarily jive with all of the rankings. And obviously you can't make everybody happy, but just in passing, and I know all of you at home are, most of you are big baseball fans. You probably frequent this site if you're looking for the future, but just guys that we've talked about today. Sure. um, 
Peter Alonso is the 48th ranked prospect on MLB Pipeline, and he's obviously a lot further forward than you know people who are in single A or advanced A or double A or anything like that. Tuki Toussaint is one below that at 47, or one above that, I should say. And beyond injuries, he's a solid performer at the major league level as well. And then Chris Paddock, he's the 31st prospect. So, you know, Carter Keboom just got called up. He's 24. And Mike Soroka, who is on fire of late, he's 23. So I don't really know how these numbers are, are chosen. I think that's a discussion for another day and another group of people. But something that's definitely going to come back on call-up corner is the moving and shaking with the different prospects. Because as, as these guys that are called up play more and more, they're going to have to be taken off these lists. Right, that's the rule, right? Yeah, you get a certain number of at-bats or a certain number of innings pitched, you're no longer – you can still be eligible to be a rookie, but you're no longer eligible right. to be a prospect. Right, and so who's to say that Brendan Rodgers or Bo Bichette, who are 9 and 10 respectively, and I think they're very close. Brendan Rodgers guys is, to keep an eye Rogers on. Rodgers is very close. Right. So why are they more of a prospect than someone who's already been called up? I don't yeah. know. Um, it also depends on the, the numbers here definitely depend on the system that you're in. So Peter Alonso was the Mets number one overall prospect. Right. So he's what, 48th overall in terms of all of the minor leagues, but he's the Mets number one. So he was the closest to the majors for them. My other call up is Nate Lowe, who isn't even on the top 100 prospects, which is a surprise to me, yeah. but he was the Rays number three prospect. So that means he was that close in their eyes, to becoming Major League ready. He's the reigning Minor League hitter of the year. Had 27 home runs across the Minor League season last year. He started in A-plus, finished in AAA on a team that won wow. the International League for the That's second nuts. year in a row. 27 total home runs. Uh, jumped two classifications, and now this year he's jumped to the final level and is in the majors. He's played in four games. Friday's his fifth. Has exactly one hit in each of his first four games so far, including a double and a run scored in his major league debut. Solid contributor so far. Numbers aren't yeah. fantastic, but you know, again, first four games. You talked about that with Vlad Guerrero as well. Didn't hit the you know leather off the baseball or whatever you want to say in his first couple of games, but still has to adjust. And obviously, they trust Nate Lowe. He's first baseman by trade. They're talking about the Rays, but he's been the DH the last couple of days, but. Um, with him and his brother in the prospect pool, and his pr brother came up to watch his major league debut with the rest of his family, which I, which I loved. Uh, and Brandon Lau, we talked about, not related, even though they might play next to each other in the yeah. infield, which is just hilarious. You bring in Josh Lowe maybe in a year or two. You got three lows in the infield. Okay, uh, that's fun. Uh, somebody said that, you know, the joke is, who do you want to buy a jersey for? So if you're a Marlins fan, you know, who would you be excited about buying a jersey of? Maybe Lewis Brinson, who got sent back down, hasn't been off to a good start this year, so maybe not a great right. example. Maybe Sixto Sanchez, their top prospect, who's supposed to finally make his organizational Victor, debut. Victor Mesa. Victor Mesa, absolutely. Uh, so the joke for the Rays is you just buy a low jersey, and you're set for three possible yeah. different guys. Yeah, yeah, I mean, unless they, they know the number of, of, of who Right, it just is. get a name and don't have a yeah, number. Mute out the numbers. <laughs> um, low, 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 uh, incorporated. I, I hope all three of them are up. That'll be so fun at some point. Um, but that's a great example that he was the reigning minor league hitter of the year, and he's not a top one hundred prospect. That kind of blows my mind. Agreed. And it's not like he was you know did that in single A 
across, right. you know, 60, you know, let's say 100 games where he hit 500. That never yeah. happens. But it, this was a guy, like I said, who finished in AAA contributing for a team that won its division. So this is a guy that absolutely can contribute. But hey, this is such a fascinating topic to to discuss and debate. But I think we're going to have to wrap this one up as much as I'd love to continue talking about this for days and, and we will, but that does it for us on our episode three of good hacks, the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and sticking with us so far. Uh, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your barber, tell your, uh, you know, bank clerk and you know, we'll see you next time. we got a lot of great content on the way. Um, so thank you so much. And We'll hear from you soon.